Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 30. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas, and on this episode, we will be taking a look at the 1989 Japanese film Tetsuo the Iron Man, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto, a fantastic and strange and at times disturbing black and white film shot on 16mm. But first... Let's get into what I've, uh, let's look into my book club, shall we? Skeleton Factory Book Club. That just started right now. Well, I've, uh, I purchased the last testament of Anton Sander LeVay, written by Boyd Rice, uh, from Hierarchy Books. And I have read the introduction chapter and finished the first chapter. And so far, so good. It is very um, interesting. And the first, well, the introduction, rather. The introduction is basically a description by Boyd Rice of how he became aware of the Church of Satan when he was a boy. And later... Uh, came in to meet, um, as an adult, Anton LeVay. And that's essentially the, you know, the first, the introduction, you know, how he heard of the Church of Satan, how he heard of the Satanic Bible, and then later how he was able in his social circle to end up meeting Anton LaVey and later becoming friends with him and even becoming a a priest in the church of Satan. And because I church, uh, church of Satan was located in San Francisco and Boyd Rice moved to San Francisco as an adult. So chapter one, the last Testament of Anton Sandra LaVey his final interview, originally published in Seconds Magazine, 1997. And it's a very, it's an interview where, you know, you could tell that they're, you can tell that they're friendly. You know, these are, these are friendly people. This is a friend interviewing another friend. And it also has some lovely photos, pictures of naked women, <laughs> parties inside of the, the infamous black house that Anton LaVey lived in in San Francisco. When I first moved to San Francisco, I went, went to went looking for the black house and I couldn't find it. And then I found out later that the black house was actually torn down. So it's probably why I couldn't find it. And then it also uh, talks about how, uh, uh, Anton LaVey worked as a creative consultant on the 1977 film The Car, which I've never seen. I'm familiar with it, but I have never seen it. And um, I guess I'm going to have to watch it. Because who knows? Maybe it's really good. But for the most part, the first chapter is an interview with LaVey. And so far, so good. 
I guess I can read a little bit of it to you. Let's see. Just kind of read something random here. Okay, so this is page 10. Okay, this is page 10 of The Last Testament of Anton Sandra LeVay. Today, there is a wealth of information dealing with LeVay, his life and his philosophy. One can easily obtain his biography, his books, newsletters, and any number of magazines devoted to his satanic creed. There is so much information about Anton LaVey, and so much, if not more, disinformation, that one might as well ask the question whether or not there is still more we don't know about him. The answer to that question is an emphatic yes. There is probably far more about Anton LaVey that is not known, perhaps never will be known than all the words about him on the printed page can betray. Only now are the ideas he espoused some 30 years ago starting to be embraced by a new generation. Ideas once thought extreme, harsh, unthinkable. And despite their growing acceptance by certain sectors of the public, these ideas still remain too bitter a pill for most of today's self-proclaimed purveyors of extremism. Ironically, but appropriately, LeVay remains an outsider, even in an era where outsider culture has been widely embraced and marketed to the society, to a society, in which, quote-unquote, rebellion has become the status quo. In an age where faggot junkie William Burroughs did Nike commercials and Henry Rollins endorsed laptop computers, it's somehow reassuring that Anton LaVey is still a pariah after all these years. And that is from Boyd Rice, The Last, Tes- the Last Testament of Anton Sander LaVey, Chapter 1. So yeah, the book is uh, kind of like that. <laughs> And uh, so far, you know, I'm liking it. Uh, Full disclosure, I have read the Satanic Bible way back when. I've read books about uh, Anton LaVey, things of of that nature. Out of curiosity, you know. And, uh, you know, and he was a San Francisco... um, you know, he was a weird character in San Francisco, and I lived in San Francisco, and, uh, you know, just wanted to know more. And he was an interesting dude, and a lot of his teachings, I guess if you want to call him that, um, interesting, interesting type of religion, uh, Satanism, well, I guess more particular, uh, specifically, Levain Satanism, because there's a there's a variety, but Levain Satanism, um, it's got a lot of it's got of a lot of eccentric uh, imagery and things like that involved with it. But for the most part, it's a type of religion that has no god, and if that sounds strange, it. It is kind of strange. (laughs) 
Satanism, Satanists don't actually believe in a physical deity known as Satan or the devil. Like they don't believe that there is a, an actual being known as Satan. It's more of an idea. It's more of what Satan represents. And it's a, there's a little bit of shit disturbing and trolling going on as well with that type of imagery. But for the most part, Satanists are very much, it's sort of an ideology of independence of um, free will, actual sacrificing of human beings or animals, sacrificing babies, things like that. Like things like that don't really, they don't exist. There is sort of, there are like rituals and there are sacrifices, but they're usually on inanimate objects as more of a, more of a curse type of thing. Like when you, uh, there's a thing called a destruction ritual where you basically make some sort of, some sort of, uh, some sort of thing that represents a person or an idea. And then you destroy the thing. You can burn it or tear it up or whatever. And you symbolically destroy that thing or that person. So, it's, I mean, uh, especially having lived through the the great satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, you know, actually, you know, becoming an adult and reading up on some of the more, how would you say, ab- above board uh, teachings of uh, the, the, the more, the actual, the word of, the satanic church, the church of Satan. There's really anyone who would take the law into their own hands in the name of Satan or the devil or whatever you want to call them. Those people are not really Satanists, at least according to the doctrines of the church of Satan. It's very interesting stuff. So anyway, that is the last testament of Anton Sandor LeVay. And I'm going to crack into chapter two this week and see uh, see what's in there. All right. Okie dokie. So what else has been going on with me? Well, I went over to Alamo Draft House over um, the South Lamar uh, Alamo Draft House here in Austin and went to Terror Tuesday night. Brought to you by the good people at Agfa and Arrow Video. And there was a showing of Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. And it was really fucking weird. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it. In fact, I'm going back tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is Tuesday. And I'm going to go see... Uh, the Dario Argento film, Demons. And I'm very much looking forward to that. I'm a big fan of the movie Demons. I love the soundtrack. Um, you know, kind of 80s heavy metal type of stuff. And uh, the band Accept is in it. 
I love the band Except. Um, the 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 album uh, Balls to the Wall is an absolutely perfect album, and it's it's lovely. Uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna go, you know. I'm going to go watch Demons, and then I'll report back to you, even though I've already seen it a million times. But I've never seen it on a screen. So I'm very, very stoked about that. So without any further ado, let's get into the movie. Tetsuo, The Iron Man, from 1989, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto. Let's see. The movie begins. Uh, we are in a deserted industrial warehouse like a scrapyard of, of sorts and there is a character a lone man is walking through this scrapyard and the character is known as the metal fetishist and the metal fetishist is played by the director Shinya Tsukamoto and just the scene alone is it's reminiscent of the opening to uh, 1984's The Nightmare on Elm Street, the original Wes Craven, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And the metal uh, fetishist, he enters a lonely office, very claustrophobic room inside of this kind of warehouse. I don't know. It's like It's like this weird industrial warehouse space used for who knows what it could be a foundry it could be it could be a lot of things but it's uh and the, also the the black and white the whole movie shot in black and white and like kind of raw dirty industrial and uh, factory like settings just look fantastic in black and white so he enters this office and if it kind of feels like He's going in there to masturbate. In a, in a way, he is. Um, he takes off his jacket and he sits down on the floor. And the metal fetishist, he slices open a large, deep, uh, almost vaginal gash on his inner thigh. And then he... Uh, well, penetrates himself with a, uh, it's like a corrugated metal rod, like a ribbed pipe, if you will. A long, hard, ribbed metal pipe. He inserts into this wound, this gash in his thigh. Later, and we're not 100% sure on the exact um, length of time, but we jump forward a little bit, and later uh, the wound is unwrapped of its bloody gauze and revealing a maggot-infested wound with the ribbed metal rod still jammed in it. It's very, uh, very grotesque. And the metal fetishist screams out in pain, and then it cuts to him running down the street he's sprinting down the street and he is struck by a car coming out of a tunnel and it's interesting because you you see him running and then you hear the car kind of screech to a stop but you don't see him get hit by a car you don't even hear his body being hit by the car but 
uh, the way it's inferred, you you know he got hit by a car. And you don't know who this person is. So far, no dialogue in the beginning of the film. And on this car, uh, we zoom in on uh, the grill. It pans across the grill of the car, and it says, in the grill, new world. And we jump to Tamora Taguchi, who is the star, the lead character, the soon-to-be Iron Man in this story, doing his best uh, uh, David Byrne impression. He's dancing like Ian Curtis. He's doing like an Ian Curtis impression. Um, If... It took place in uh, the band Yes's Owner of a Lonely Heart music video, but Owner of a Lonely Heart, if it took place inside of a combination of Nine Inch Nails Head Like a Hole video and the Hurt video. Okay? Can you picture this? If you don't get all these references, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to... There was once a time where music was uh, sometimes accompanied by a uh, music... Video. It was a video depicting the song that the band wrote. So you would get a visual depiction of a song. We used to call those music videos. So Tomorrow Taguchi, who in the film is his character is uh, called the Salary Man, and the. I just had to point out the soundtrack in this film is really interesting. It's really good. And it's provided by um, a gentleman named Chu Ishikawa, who actually passed away in 2017. Rest in peace, Chu Ishikawa. And he was from, um, he was in a band called Zitlik. Virgliter, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct, but sort of an industrial experimental type band. And hey, hey speaking of speaking of Nine Inch Nails, uh, Trent Reznor wrote the theme song to Tetsuo Three, The Bullet Man, the third film in this series, and it's a series of films, yeah. There's one, there's two, and then three, which was uh, made in uh, 2009. So the salary man, and I had to look this up because I was like, eh, that's a weird name. Uh, according to the internet, a salary man refers to a Japanese white-collar worker who shows intense loyalty to their company. Salary men are expected to work long hours, participate in after-work leisure activities such as drinking, singing karaoke with colleagues, and to value work over all else. So a salary man is basically uh, uh, the nature boy Ric Flair. And if you don't know who Ric Flair is, fuck, you need to... Jesus Christ, you, you have a you have Google, look it up. Fucking Ric Flair. Woo! Anyways, the So the Cyberpunk contemporary 
Katsuhiro Tomo's Akira, or Akira, if you're a fucking asshole. Okay, this is America. And in America, we say Acura, like the car. Okay, we we don't have time to, to uh, get the precise pronunciation of things from other countries. Okay, I know that sounds harsh, but it's unfortunately a fact. So uh, Akira was released just over a year later um, from Tetsuo the Iron Man, and they they both parallel. Uh, with just you know, regard, uh, besides the fact that they're both uh, sort of in the cyberpunk genre, they both parallel with similar scenes. Um, particularly, Akira's uh, antagonist Tetsuo. Hmm. Tetsuo. Tetsuo hits a child imbued with psychic powers with his motorcycle as he speeds out of a tunnel. Mm-hmm. This is very, this is also very, um, very much like in the beginning of Akira. So Tetsuo hits the kid with his motorcycle and um, the powers these these psychic powers that the kid has protects the kid and forms like a force field around him. So when Tetsuo hits the kid, he actually hits the force field and his bike just explodes and he flies off and he gets all fucked up and shit. But this, this accident ends up giving Tetsuo... Uh, Powerful psychic powers on a par with the title character, Akira. And there's other parallels with um, the film Akira. And I know fucking Akira was a goddamn manga, okay? For all you manga nerds, jump down my throat. I fucking own the series, okay? I've read them, okay? But I just found that very interesting. There's all these little parallels with... uh, Akira and I mean I'm not I'm not saying that <laughs> not saying that Akira ripped off Tetsuo the Iron Man you know I'm not saying Tetsuo the Iron Man ripped off Akira but I just think that there's weird parallels maybe did someone did rip each other off who knows what I do know is Tetsuo the Iron Man took 18 months to film and the production was a nightmare and a bunch of people on the crew quit and it was a whole fucking thing. And um, Shinya Tsukamoto had to really pick up the slack of a lot of people who rather quit or like he was the production company. <laughs> he, he had to do the writing, the directing. He did all the special effects. There's quite a bit of stop motion animation in this movie as well. And, and acted in it like he wore a fucking shitload of hats in this so but also uh akira before it was released was a manga you know so and it was so it it was years between the manga and when the movie actually got released so who knows i mean we all get influenced and rip off some you know somebody eventually right so we jump to the salary man 
and he's at home and he's shaving in the mirror when he notices there's something growing out of his cheek and and it looks like um like an electrical capacitor or like a like a or resistor growing out of his cheek it looks like something that would be attached to like a you know like a i don't know if you like if you took your like if you had a a, a, like you, you, your old phone when you were a kid, your landline, you just cracked the phone open and looked inside. Like just look at any little piece connected to like a little like fucking switchboard or something. Or the fuck those things are called. He has like this little electronic thing, this little metal thing growing out of his cheek. And he's like, what the fuck is that? And he goes to grab it and it squirts blood all over the mirror. It's gross, but it's great. So the salary man it jumps to the salary man and he's uh drinking coffee and reading the paper in his living room with his cats and um the sound of the sound is uh of his very cool coffee siphon uh siphon is on the table and the sound design of this movie is wonderful it's so strange and odd and sounds of things that would have a natural sound he sort of forgoes naturals not always but natural sounding things he'll replace with like the sounds of metal clanging or scratching or some type of mechanical grinding noise it's it's very interesting so he's sitting there drinking coffee and um well actually speaking of coffee (laughs) let's take another detour shall we so this movie is uh, if you ever read anything about it, people will often compare this film to uh, Eraserhead, David Lynch's first film. And and, and if you've watched uh, anything, you know David Lynch related, especially Twin Peaks, you know that there's there's a big emphasis on the enjoyment of coffee. I'm actually drinking a cup of coffee. What time is it right now? Ooh deep into the afternoon, but I'm already drinking. I'm still drinking coffee. I love it. Anyways, I found out (laughs) one, the coffee siphon in this movie is fucking tight. I really want one. I don't know how it works, but I fucking want one. It just looks fucking cool. And (laughs) I looked at, I looked up the exact brand that the salary man has because they, they like zoom in on the actual name of the coffee siphon. It zoomed in, and then the shot fucking, like, backs up, you know? So I, they're not terribly expensive. I want one just to have one. Um, anyways, did you know that David Lynch has his own brand of coffee? This is true. And I was shocked to see this, and I was very pleased, and I was surprised how it's not some... There's a lot of companies out there of, like... Oh, here's the famous person's such and such coffee. Like, I know Rob Zombie has one. There's a company called, uh, I think they're called Dead Sled Coffee, and they they sponsor, they have different types of roasts for horror-related people. Like, they, they have a Rob Zombie coffee. They have a Tom Savini one. They have one for Kane Hodder, who was Jason Voorhees, if you watch it. 
Friday the 13th movies. But yeah, uh, I looked it up and David Lynch's coffee, like I found it on the fucking Whole Foods website. So I guess depending on where you live and if you have Amazon Prime, because Amazon owns Whole Foods, you could order some David Lynch organic coffee. So, yeah, maybe next time you're at Whole Foods or you're doing your Amazon Prime grocery order, this is not an ad for Amazon, by the way, unless they want to send me money. (laughs) Cut me a check, Jeff Bezos, okay? All right, but yeah, David Lynch coffee. I was very very stoked to see that there was such a thing. So, I mean, I'm certainly not going to pay for his very expensive transcendental meditation uh, courses on his website. I just don't have the time or I'm, I'm too busy investing my money in other things to do that. David Lynch, I'm sorry. Maybe someday. Who knows? Maybe I'll make enough money where I could just pay for David Lynch transcendental meditation courses, but not today. So the uh, the salary man has a brief phone call with his girlfriend. She says she can't stop thinking about the car accidents that happened. Mm. So the salary man was definitely involved with that car accident. He was probably driving it. So probably a hit and run too. So mm-hmm. So uh, now we jump to the subway. We are in a subway tunnel. Um, Train pulls up. Salary man stumbles out of the train and sits on a bench next to a woman with glasses. And the woman with glasses, uh, his character is the woman with glasses, played by actress Nobu Kanaoka. She notices a steaming biomechanical ball on the ground. It's just sort of this semi-organic kind of mechanical wire sticking out of it thing, and it's steaming on the ground. It's near her feet. And she decides to poke it with a pen. Well, the, the metal fetishist, his... Okay, uh, so this is where things get weird. So, so try to follow this. The metal fetishist, uh, let's call it his spirit, is in this ball, this biomechanical uh, amorphous ball of shit on the ground. And when the woman makes contact with the ball, with the pen... She becomes possessed by the metal fetishist. So he's rather a demon who can inhabit a host's body or the dude in the beginning of the movie who was actually hit by the car was the metal fetishist and somehow he somehow uh, uh, transcended his human existence and now he's sort of like floating in the ether and he's able to possess people. So it's something like that. So something in that general area is happening kind of like uh Brad Dorff's character in 
The Exorcist 3, which, of course, big fan of here at the Skeleton Factory. Big fan of Exorcist 3, where Brad Dorff plays a serial killer called the Gemini Killer. And he is institutionalized and locked down in a, uh, a mental health facility. And Brad Dourif is occupying the body of the original priest from the first movie, Father Damien. Okay? Remember Father Damien at the end? He, like, jumps out the window and goes down those weird stairs and, you know, and fucking breaks his neck and whatever. But so apparently he didn't die. He didn't die, and now Brad Dourif, the Gemini Killer's spirit, is now inside of Father Damien, and now he's in this maximum security mental hospital. But he's somehow able to commit these crimes, these horrific murders, using the same M.O. from... Because the whole thing is Brad Dourif's character is dead. He was like a serial killer who was executed, but... When he died in the electric chair, his spirit was able to jump into Father Damien, so he was still alive. So that's basically what the metal fetishist is. The metal fetishist is sort of this entity that exists. And he has his goal. Well, we'll find out what his goal is later, but he actually does have a goal. You know what I mean? He actually has a purpose. So... That's basically what the metal fetishist is. He's like a like a spirit that can inhabit people's bodies. But once he inhabits their bodies, the people begin to transform. So now, now that uh, woman with glasses, woman with glasses touched the ball. Now she's possessed and her hand begins to transform into an itchy biomechanical, let's call it a claw, this sort of misshapen claw thing. So the salary man says, uh, he sees this and is like, fuck this, I'm out, and gets up, starts taking off. Now, he starts running away from the woman with glasses, who's now, for all intents and purposes, the, the metal fetishist, and... She starts chasing him. So they're going through all these subway tunnels and stairs and shit, and he's trying to get away from her, and he tries to hide in a bathroom, and then she finds him, and he ends up stabbing her in the neck with a pen <laughs> to uh, no avail, and she corners him, and uh, it's weird. Like, she has her weird, like, kind of mutating claw arm hand thing, and it looks... And I went back and watched it a couple of times, but what it looks like is she's cornered the salary man is walking towards him and grabs her boob and then like squeezes it until her tit explodes. <laughs> it's weird. And then salary man fights back and, uh, you know, uh, punches her in the face and everything like that. And then, what it looks like is he like kind of bear hugs her to death or bear hugs her unconscious. It's kind of what it looks like. So there's sort of an inference that the metal fetishist infected the salary man 
with a virus that is mutating his arm and uh, also his Achilles peel, like his Achilles tendon. So like his, like his, he pulls up his, pulls up his sleeve and now his forearm is now like, has all this like goopy white oatmeal-y gross swollen tumory look to it. So the salary man now is infected with this metal, the front by the metal fetishist, but he doesn't become the metal fetishist. He just, he begins to transform. Oh yeah. The one on the Achilles heel that like, that's probably the one thing in the entire movie where I was like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, it's like, he like pulls down his sock and pulls down his shoe and like his, his, like his Achilles tendon is all like blistery and like, it's it's like corroding and it oh god it looks gross, but um, which is funny because it it's it like the thought of it is gross. It does it, like it kind of looks corny on camera, but it's like the thought of it is gross. So the woman with glasses at this point, she's like visually starting to transform. She looks you can see it in her face like she's possessed. She has like oh I just got possessed hair. And you know who she looks like? She looks like, okay, you ready for a reference? Here you go. She begins, she looks like a Japanese version of the character of Credence Leonore Gildug. And who is that? Good question. That is a character from Troll 2. Credence Leonore Gilgood. From Troll Two, of ancient druid origins. So, if you haven't seen Troll Two, it's like a whole thing. It's kind of like the room, and I don't really, I don't like the room. I don't know why people like it so much. And I haven't seen the Disaster Artist. I just, I don't know. I need, I kind of need to be talked into go watch a. Uh, what's that fool's name? Franco. Uh, yeah, I don't, I just don't feel like watching any of his movies. <laughs> um, but I'll watch, uh, Troll 2 apparently. But anyways, Troll 2 is way better than The Room. I like, I get why people think that The Room is so fucking funny and amazing and, go see it at midnight showings and shit, but I don't feel compelled to do such a thing. Troll 2, I think, is, um, I don't know, It's uh, I prefer that type of uh, bad movie. And I wouldn't even say it's so bad it's good. I would say it's bad. I I don't like so bad it's good. I, uh, let's call it, it's, Bad but watchable. I uh, that's that's an official term. I just made that up. Bad but watchable, and I think people understand what I mean by that. Because so bad it's good is like, well, then it's good. You think it's good. You're just too fucking embarrassed to admit that a movie is good. So you say it's so bad it's good. You know what I mean? It's like. Like, you know, 
it's like people th- would think they would consider it's like you're just embarrassed you know that people will if you're like oh i like uh showgirls or some fucking movie like that because you are embarrassed to admit that you like the fucking movie you know it's it's not so bad it's good it's just it's it's you're embarrassed that's what it is it's bad but it's watchable that's what it actually is in, in case you haven't seen this movie and you need some sort of kind of like um, visual or because uh, it's kind of an it's a weird experimental type of film. It's kind of sci-fi. It's kind of it's got body horror elements to it. So people compare Tetsuo the Iron Man to David Lynch's Eraserhead. And yes, they're both in black and white and they both have scenes of uh, industrial landscapes and things of that nature. But um, like Eraserhead isn't, doesn't have the frenetic, crazy uh, pace of Tetsuo. Tetsuo is like 60 minutes long and it's just madness the entire fucking time. Like Eraserhead, Eraserhead has some ebbs and flows, you know, there's spikes of shit and then it's, you know, there's spikes and valleys, you know? So people compare this movie to Eraserhead. They they also compare it to David Cronenberg's Videodrome, but I think the more apt comparison is David Lynch's The Elephant Man and David Cronenberg's The Fly. Uh, the Elephant Man, also in black and white, but yes, The Elephant Man starring Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt. Uh... And David Cronenberg's The Fly, wonderful, perfect horror movie with Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. So the black and white elements, especially the train station scene from The Elephant Man, where um, if you've seen it, then I'm refreshing your memory. If you haven't seen it, there's a scene where the Elephant Man gets chased by a bunch of people in through a train station and the chase ends in a public bathroom and the elephant man is cornered and it's the famous, uh, I am not an animal. I am a human being scene. Uh, cause the people, it's like a mob surrounding him, but they don't want to touch him because usually he wears like a, like a fucking sack over his head with an eye hole, like the killer from uh, Town the Dreaded Sundown or fucking Friday the 13th Part 2. But that whole scene is very, it, it reminds me a lot of the salary man being chased by the woman in glasses through the subway and ending in a bathroom scene from Tetsuo. I just. I don't know. I, I felt like there was a little more. I, because I, that's a very specific scene. You know, it's like I feel like maybe that was borrowed from David Lynch. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I would. I don't. I guess the time. Yeah, yeah, Elephant Man was in the eighties, so possibly could be a um, homage. Who knows? Uh, and also. The Elephant Man in the movie, uh, who was an actual person, John Merrick, he had this 
horrible uh, deformity and he had this debilitating disease like his skull was all gigantic and weird looking and he's bone structure and his hands were deformed and all this shit but um, the elf man played by John Hurt who's experienced the body horror of a biomechanical invader in Ridley Scott's Alien so I thought that's very interesting like John Hurt in a David Lynch film, David Lynch did Eraserhead. There's a lot of kind of biomechanical uh, elements in Tetsuo. And, you know, I'm sure Shinya Tsukamoto saw Alien. So I, I think the that's sort of the biomechanical uh, infestation, that alien invader taking over your body, I'm sure, was some source of inspiration for Tetsuo. Also, the movie also shares, uh, Tetsuo, that is, Tetsuo the Unman shares a sort of sadomasochistic body horror theme, and it's more overtly incorporating hyper-sexual, perverse themes and I don't I I don't know I feel like that actually kind of gets glossed over if you read any kind of reviews or watch any reviews about Tetsuo the Iron Man there's always like the Lynch comparisons David Cronenberg and body horror uh, references to Akira shit like that but it's the sort of the the sexual themes of Tetsuo or I I don't I'm not saying that no one has brought it up. It's not like I'm fucking breaking new ground here, but it's like I don't there it's like the Tetsuo with the Iron Man is there's a lot of sexual stuff going on, this sort of like melding of sex and violence, the sort of melding of human and machine and the sexual the sexual uh needs of a human being, but through um, you know what it's like? It's like the it's like the Borg Queen from Star, from Star Trek. You know, didn't she want to? She wanted to like turn Picard into a Borg, turn him into Lacutus, and then they'd fuck, and then she'd have like, you know, a boyfriend. That's how I remember it. I <laughs> it was something like that. But <clears throat> and like David Cronenberg's The Fly, that was a major component to that movie was Jeff Goldblum uh, gets zapped in his fucking teleportation device, but a fly got into it and now his DNA mixed with the DNA of the fly. And now he's slowly transforming into a fly. So his human form is deteriorating. His teeth are falling out. His hair is falling out. His limbs and his skin is starting to like, fucking melt off and shit. It's this whole fucking thing. He's turning into a fly, you know, but at the same time, there is a, uh, there's a part where he, when he first realizes that there's some type of transformation that's taken place, he's also really horny. Like when he still looks like eighties, Jeff Goldblum with a mullet and shit and a six pack, like, like he just wants to fuck all the time. So there's like a whole scene where him and Gina Davis and she's just like, fuck dude. 
we fuck like 10 times. And he's like, I know, it's great, right? Let's fuck again. And she's like, fucking easy, cowboy. So then he's like, if you won't fuck me, I'll fucking find some skank at the bar and fuck her. And then he does that. So it's a whole thing. But yeah, the but the sexual element is there until and until he his transformation really starts to set in and, and his mutation becomes debilitating. There is no more sex. There's no more any of that. He's just literally melting and uh, falling apart because he's turning into a a fly. <laughs> but I feel like Tetsuo the Iron Man has those those themes. You know, there's the themes of um, well, when the metal fetishist he cuts a very vaginal looking cut into his leg, and then jams a pipe into it you know there's sort of that sort of sexual penetration element and well i mean we'll get to all the kind of sexual things in this movie but and they're very obvious like they're very it's not sort of veiled like below the surface type of inferge like it's there's sex in this movie but it's just glossed over and I just feel like it's a more important part of the transformation because it's like um, when he's still kind of human, he's he's basically losing, just like in The Fly, he's, as he is getting, as he's turning into, like, once as he's transforming, there there's a period of time where they he has all these human qualities. You know, he can... You know, he can, uh, you know, sit and drink coffee and he can go to work and he can fuck and he can do all these things that humans can do. But as he begins to transform, those things go away. And and so it's not, it's not some, it's not only losing his, he's he's not only losing his uh, humanity physically, but he's also losing it mentally and he's losing it he's losing it in a way where what he's becoming it's it's completely robbing him of his humanity but it doesn't happen right away it's it's painful it's slow and i don't know i just i find that part of tetsuo really interesting and i mean Quick recommendation. If you like Eraserhead, if you like The Fly and the Tetsuo series, uh, check out uh, Claire Denise Trouble Every Day. And that is, I've, I featured it on this show. I had this, I had this segment, I think it was called Movies to to Come Down Off of Drugs (laughs) To. Um, and I talked about uh, Claire Denise's Trouble Every Day, and I also talked about uh, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. But Trouble Every Day has this low-key body horror, sex and violence uh, type of thing going on, and and also Paul Verhoeven movies. If you if you haven't watched any Paul Verhoeven movies in a long time, like his like more popular ones, like go back and watch them. Is there's a lot of that sort of melding of sex and violence and sort of losing your humanity 
and having it replaced with technology. Like that's, that is something that's in a lot of Paul Verhoeven movies, such as RoboCop, fucking regular human cop. And he gets, he gets murdered on the streets. And then this company that owns the police department takes his body and puts it inside of a machine and creates a, it creates a hybrid human robot super cop, you know, and the whole movie's about him being uh, essentially resurrected. It's kind of like a Jesus story. <laughs> so, Hey, and Easter wasn't too long ago. So there you go. Uh, what else? Hollow man. When hollow man sucks, it's basically, uh, Kevin Bacon is a scientist and he figure out, figures out how to become invisible. And what is the first thing he does with the ability of invisibility? He just like rapes everybody. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I didn't really like Hollow Man. It's fun to make fun of, but um, uh, Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct's lovely film, and a lot of sex, a lot of violence, and especially in in, in, in Basic Instinct where the Catherine Tremell character, Sharon Stone's character, is a, she's like a wealthy author. She writes fiction, and in her books, it's about a woman who fucking kills men. <laughs> with an ice pick and Sharon Stone actually ends up doing that uh, in the movie. Of course, uh, the Catherine Trammell character actually will go out, find men, take them home, fuck them and then kill them with an ice pick. So it's, she, she herself is like taking humanity and sex and injecting violence in a way where she's making fiction reality. You know what I mean? And, how I don't see how that's any different than RoboCop. You know, it's it doesn't seem like those two movies have a lot in common, but they but they do. Like she's trying to create her own reality. Like she's becoming a fictional character. It's interesting. And I mean but in that movie she's obviously crazy. So, but and Robocop is just some poor guy who's a fucking victim of, you know, a corporation. But Starship Troopers, another great Paul Verhoeven movie. And there's a lot of um, giving up your humanity. But in this this time in more of a uh, fascistic state, because the whole thing in uh, Starship Troopers is there's these young people. And if you want to gain citizenship, you have to uh, join the military. And every time you, you know, the our main characters run into somebody who's like a recruiter or somebody who works for the military or even their school teacher, their like high school teacher who uh, played by Michael Ironside in the movie, like his arms missing. He's missing a fucking arm. OK. And his whole thing is like he was in the military. So, you know, and there's all kinds of people who have like missing eyes and missing hands and all this shit. And they're like, you know volunteering for service is the greatest thing I ever did. But, you know, and I think that that's relatable to now, especially, you know, we have veterans now who, you know, they have missing arms, they got missing legs. They, you know, they have seen combat and are forever physically, mentally changed by that. And I think like Starship Troopers is sort of like following in that thing of like, you take somebody who's like, 
a pristine human and you fill their head full of propaganda and you put them out in the battlefield and they get their fucking arms and legs chopped off by alien bugs and they're now forever physically changed and shit, but it's like the indoctrination is so deep in Starship Troopers where these, even the people who are, you know, debilitated, you know, handicapped now, they're still like, you got to fucking join up. It's like, you know, it's, it's us against the bugs. It's, it's, it's another version of like people losing their humanity or uh, total recall, total recall. Arnold goes to the fucking, goes to the company recall. He wants to go on a fucking vacation. They're like, you know, we'll plug you into this fucking machine and we'll just put, implant the memory of you having a vacation. And he decides to fucking become a secret agent. His vacation is he becomes a secret agent. And he like, that's his vacation. And it seems 100% real in his head. So he's able to escape reality and become, you know, this character. But also in the movie, there's like mutants. Like on Mars, there's people who are like mutated. And part of their mutation is they have psychic powers. So I thought that was like, you know, this is how my mind thinks. I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, Tetsu the Iron Man's like that. Like fucking metal fetishist like is able to get inside someone's brain and possess them. And then they ultimately physically change into a biomechanical uh, abomination sort of thing. And total recall. There's, there's a lot of that. There's, you know, connecting your brain to a fucking computer and just altering your reality, your reality to a point where you don't know what's real anymore. Well, I mean, this isn't a Paul Verhoeven movie, but it's, it, it's very similar in a way, but it's more wrapped into a kind of emo love story, and that's uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And I like that movie. I'm not the biggest Jim Carrey fan. Like, he's done a couple of funny movies back in the day, but um, Eternal... And I'm not even a fan of, like, his, you know, serious, dramatic work. You know, but I liked um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's a... Uh, you know what Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is? It's 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 total recall, but for pussies. That's what Eternal Sunshine is. It's total recall, but for per- pussies. That's what it what it is. You know, there's no action sequences, there's no gunplay, there's spaceships, cyborgs, chicks with three tits, there's none of that in fucking Eternal Sunshine. Um, anyways. Let's get back to Tetsuo, the Iron Man. So we jump to a dream sequence where the salary man is treated to an erotic dance by his girlfriend, played by Ki Fujiwara. She's sporting a vacuum hose strap-on. Okay? If you can picture that. It, like it, the She's wearing this strap-on, and in it, and the penis portion looks like uh, Doc Ox, one of his tentacles, okay? Uh, except it's a penis. And it's brought to life with some lovely stop-motion animation. It's like crawling all over the salary man. So 
it's like um I don't know, it's very reminiscent of like a Peter Gabriel music video. Except there's sodomy. So the hose inevitably rams up his ass. And um you ever have a bad sex dream? Have you ever had one? I don't know. I I have. But, you know, everyone's had like a good sex dream, but you don't you don't often hear people talking about a bad sex dream. Anyways, um I mean I mean a woman with a vacuum hose uh fully stop motion animated penis strap on fucking you in the ass is probably I would consider that a bad dream. So he wakes up from the dream and goes uh, to the bathroom and goes to the bathroom mirror. And so remember he had that fucking metal electronic thing growing out of his cheek and he like squeezed it out and it squirted blood everywhere. So now he's been wearing like uh, he's been wearing like a little square of gauze and medical tape over that. So he, so the wound has been covered. So he goes to the mirror and he pulls off the bandage. Pulls it off his cheek to reveal in a open, large wound on and in his cheek. And it's and it's like inside the this this wound is like a nest of wires and and mechanical parts. You know what I just thought of? Has there ever been a like steampunk body horror film, like is that a thing? If it, if that's a thing and it's decent, <laughs> or if it's bad but watchable, let me know. Go to Instagram and let me know at skeleton underscore factory. Let me know if there's a fucking steampunk body horror film. Not that I'm into steampunk or anything, but I don't know. Steampunk, there's always like gears and steam and, you know, weird pipe fixtures attached to things that seemingly don't need or require them, you know? So his girlfriend wakes up and, oh, by the way, his girlfriend, uh, Ki Fujiwara, her name in the movie is uh, Girlfriend. So, so his girlfriend wakes up. And asks if he's okay. And he says, oh, it's nothing. Uh, it's, it's clearly nothing. It's clearly not nothing. It's like you, it, like, you look like somebody fucking stomped on a fucking Game Boy and then shoved the pieces into your cheek. It's gross. So anyways, he covers it back up. He's like, no, babe, it's fine. I'm okay. And he's he's like, oh, it's it's nothing. <laughs> and uh, so then after this, we immediately cut to fuck time. That's what time it is now. So he's basically like, well, you're up and I'm up. So we might as well do what adults. See, when a man and a woman care about each other very much, they fuck. Okay, so this time... He is now he is now he is penetrating her from behind. Okay. Sort of oddly mirroring the previous dream sequence, but in reality, and he and he suddenly 
stops. Like, it's weird. He's, uh, you know, he has her pinned up against the wall, and and he's, they're doing it from behind, like, like dogs. And the sort of bandage around his forearm, because remember he had his... He had a his arms started weirdly, oddly, disgustingly mutating, and he covered that up. But like the bandage kind of came loose, and he saw his disgusting arm. And he just like jumped off of her. Like he was scared of his own disgusting mutation, uh, mutated arm. Which you know he he should be. It's it's gross and disgusting and hard to ignore. And so he suddenly stops, and then we jump to him. Like, he starts, like, feeding her food. Like, he starts with, like, <laughs> I think he, like, heated up, like, some type of noodle thing in a pan. But anyone who's ever heated up spaghetti or fucking leftover chow mein or some shit in a fucking pan, it just sticks to the fucking pan. So he's, like, scraping it out of the pan. It's probably one of those, like, Teflon-coated pans. He's just scraping it with a fork. So who knows how many pieces of fucking protective non-stick pan coating he's about to stick in this woman's mouth but he <laughs> here honey here's some noodles and he like feeds it that to her and then and then he eventually gets to uh he has like a sausage he has like a he looks like a half a hot dog on a fork and he goes to feed it to her and she sort of seductively runs the hot dog over her lips and and like actually like right as she does eventually bite down on it this like the this bright light whites out the screen like the like this burst of light and it's showing the the salary man's face and his eyes close um sort of to indicate just her biting down on this sausage made him come or something like he found great pleasure and ecstasy in it. And, and then she eats the sausage and then the fork, she's like, she briefly like fillets the fork itself. Like she just sort of like is licking and sucking on it, manipulating it with her mouth. There, there, there may be there. Okay. There is foreshadowing in this movie that may be lost on someone who is watching this for the first time because really this movie you should just watch twice and the thing's only fucking 60 minutes long. So if you watch it twice, it's like watching a regular length movie. But it's like the first time you watch it, it's good to just absorb because it's so much crazy coming at you. You have to just absorb the crazy just so you can kind of fucking dig your heels in and, okay, well, like once you watch it one, then you watch it a second time, then you can kind of look at all those sort of plot details. And there is a moment where they fall into each other's arms. It's after the whole, like, mouth, food, weird scene. And then, and he says, like, uh, fall into each other's arms. And he's like, don't ever leave me. And it's it's actually very, very sweet, okay? Like, this is a guy who's kind of going through some shit, but he has somebody there with him to kind of help him through this this time and and the scene's very it's it's very desperate but it's it's a sweet moment and it kind of you know it you feel like they're a couple you feel like they care about each other they're then they're then sat at a table 
and this is this is very much like a Japanese thing. Like you'll have a table, but it's very low to the ground, and then people will sit on the floor at the table. So imagine your dining room table, but you like chop the fucking legs in half, and now you're just sitting on the floor because sitting in a chair would make no sense because the table's so low. So they're sitting in the living room at this table, and his dick has now transformed into a giant drill bit, a forearm-sized spinning metal cock with knobby shit and spikes on it. And, and you know what it looks like? It resembles the, uh, the cosmic key from Masters of the Universe. You know, the Dolph Lundgren He-Man movie? There's the, the, the MacGuffin in that movie was this thing called the Cosmic Key, and it looks like the salaryman's drill penis in this film. So, so the drill drills through up upwards through the table and, like, drills. It emerges out of the table from underneath. So um, they both freak out, understandably, and... Dude panics and he runs to the bathroom, locks himself in, and he's basically like, "Stay away from me! I'm clearly, I'm clearly dangerous to be around. <laughs> My dick is a d- giant drill bit now." So, but uh, she bursts in anyway. She just breaks into the bathroom and because she's scared, but she's also very concerned and she cares. So he's hidden in the bathroom. He's and the bathroom is dark and he's sort of hidden in a corner and he's cowering in a corner and he's covered his head with a, with a towel. And she tells him, uh, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to be, uh, alone. And she, is clearly trying to console him, trying to help him. And, and he's like, basically like, don't look at me. I'm fucking hideous. And she's like, Hey, you know, nothing shocks me. So basically take the fucking towel off your head. You know, she's a real, what they, what the kids refer to as a, uh, a real ride or die chick. That's what the kids say now. So, well, until he takes off the towel, takes the towel off to reveal that, Half his face is now a twisted metal and wires eroding through flesh uh, monster face, basically. And she screams, and her reaction is fantastic. Like, when they first, when he takes the towel off, he's sort of, he's cast in shadow. And when he sort of, his face is revealed in the light, it's very, it's very, uh, very scary and just the the her reaction her scream of terror is fucking wonderful and um you know it reminds me of like um phantom of the opera the like 1925 phantom of the opera when when the the phantom is unmasked and his face is revealed and and you know it kind of gave me Phantom of the Opera vibes. And actually another, okay. (laughs) 
let's jump around here. Um, <laughs> another Elephant Man similarity. I found this interesting. Uh, so the character of the element, uh, Elephant Man, his, his name is John Merrick, but, uh, you know, the Elephant Man, his right arm is afflicted in such a way with uh, with his sort of born and uh, he, he was born deformed, right? So, but his right arm, just like the salary man, both of their right arms are are afflicted and they actually become more deformed over time. And and the the elephant man has like like fibrous tumors growing out of his deformed spine. He has like a, he has like a hunched back and it's very gross and and so does the salary man, but in the form of like pipes and wires growing out of his back. He has like a hunchback, but of like metal parts, pipes and tubes and shit. It's so I between that and this sort of like his arm transforming, the one arm transforming, I was like, Oh, that's that's an interesting similarity to the iron uh to the elephant man rather and you know. I you know, I I just hear so many comparisons to Eraserhead, and I'm like, I don't know. This movie reminds me a lot of uh, The Elephant Man in a weird way. Where were we? Oh, yeah. he So he, so Salary Man ends up, now that she sees that he's like, is rapidly transforming into this thing, like she attacks him you know, out of panic as she attacks him with a butcher knife (laughs) and ends up stamping him in the neck and sort of in his death throes, like he's on the ground and she like mounts him and she still has her hand on the handle of the knife and it's stuck in his neck and they're like still like caressing each other even though she's like twisting the knife in the neck, in his neck, like she's still like caressing his face and he's sort of holding her and she's on top of him. And she even like licks his, <laughs> licks his face. And, um, again, like that kind of gives me trouble every day vibes. And, uh, also it kind of reminds me of the scene in Terminator two when the, uh, the mental hospital orderly, the dude with the glasses fucking licks Sarah Connor's face. But anyways, um, also it's unclear if the girlfriend after this, because it's it's unclear if rather she impales herself on his drill penis or did he do it? It's not really clear, but what you do know is that his drill penis somehow ends up inside her and you see fucking blood spraying all over the walls and shit and it like kills her. So... And judging by his reaction to this, you don't know if he did it and maybe was unaware or if she, like, basically killed herself on his rotating, sharp metal drill penis. So we get occasional shots, flashes of the metal fetishist laughing in this scene. So perhaps he possessed the salaryman to kill her. Maybe, maybe not. Also around this time, like, 
you know, uh, the the soundtrack of this movie is great. It's like it's very industrial. Uh, you know, I dig kind of weird industrial avant garde shit like that. Um, I, you know what? If you like the soundtrack to this movie, go watch. There is um, you can probably find it online. Um, but I first bought it as a DVD in two thousand seven. And it's from the band Einsturzend Neubotten. Einsturzend is a E I N S T U R Z E N D E Neubotten N E U B A U T E N Einsturzend Neubotten, and they did this live performance at this place called the Place de Republic, and it was, I think. It was like a it was a large old government building in Germany and the building was going to be demolished. So <laughs> they were like, "Oh cool, well, if you're just going to blow that building up anyways, can we go, like do a concert in there?" So they did a concert inside this fucking uh, building and the building itself looked kind of like they already started gutting the fucking place. Like it's it's not like a like a symphony hall where it's all like pretty and shit. It's like already kind of like torn, like they tore some of it apart, but they just filmed this concert in it anyway. It's very cool. So Einster's and Neubotten, like they are known for having weird like instruments, like weird percussive instruments, like hitting metal and springs and, and it's good shit. Yeah, if if you're not into this type of music and you kind of find it interesting, like that's a, I think that band is a good kind of like way to jump in. It's very kind of challenging music, depending on which album you're listening to, but it's kind of challenging music to listen to. But sometimes you want to listen to something that's like weird and you have to like focus on it. It's not like background music, you know. You have to kind of actively listen to it. So, anyways, so now the salary man's whole body is transformed into the well the iron man he's now become this robot he's not not even like a robot he's just completely being overcome his human body is being overcome by metal he's become the iron man he looks like you know he looks like he looks like if uh dr otto was in guar okay uh i think a good portion of people listening to this know they are aware of the metal band Guar. Okay. <laughs> but I don't know if too many people are familiar with Dr. Otto. Dr. Otto, and he had a movie called Dr. Otto and the Riddle of the Moonbeam. And Dr. Otto is played by uh, Jim Varney, who you may know as Ernest. Ernest P. Whirl, you know. Hey, Vern, <laughs> that guy, he did Ernest Goes to Camp and Ernest Scared Stupid and, you know, the, the, all, you know, that guy. But he also did this character called Dr. Otto and the movie Dr. Otto and the Riddle of the Moonbeam is not like an Ernest movie at all. It's weird. It's fucking really strange. And the whole Dr. Otto like outfit looks like kind of how the Iron Man in this movie kind of looks like a little bit, but like, but kind of mixed with the band Guar because they were like ridiculous costumes. So anyways, so he gets a phone call now that he's like 
the Iron Man. He's like walking around in his fucking apartment and he's like this metal creature now. And the phone rings. He picks it up and it's a, and it's the metal fetishist. And metal fetishist tells him he's like he can't escape him. He's like, you can't fucking escape me. He basically calls him out, too. And he's just like, the metal finisher shows the salary man on his TV. So he's able to, like, control his fucking TV. So um, his t- he shows on his TV that it was, he knows that the salary man and his girlfriend were the one that hit him with their car. And he, the two of them, the salary man and his girlfriend, hit hit him with their fucking car, and then took and then disposed of the metal fetishist's body in the woods, and then uh, they like threw him down this like little fucking hill where there's some trees, and and then they like fucked up against a fucking tree and shit. And like the metal fetishist like remembers all of this and he's able to show um, the salary man who's now the iron man. He's able to show him this. Like he's like, I fucking knows you motherfuckers. So, um, I don't know why he couldn't just, you know, tell him on the TV, like, Hey, it's the metal fetishist. And I know that you fucking killed me, you and your dumb girlfriend. But, uh, I guess he, Wanted to call him, you know, I guess, you know, whatever. <laughs> so the, the now, the now transformed Iron Man, he like charges, well, he like recharges himself with a fork and a light socket, which would probably kill most people, but not the Iron Man. Like he, like you can't tell if it gives him energy or if he gets off on it or what, but it probably a bit of both. So <laughs> He recharges in the light socket, and the uh, the metal fetishist, uh, you see him in another location, and he's applying, like, war paint on. And you know what he looks like? He looks like, um, and it's played by uh, fucking uh, Shinya Tsukamoto. So he he kind of looks like... And this might even be a reference. This may be a bridge too far, Adam. He looks like... Oh, so the metal fetishist looks like um, a Japanese female wrestler from like the 90s named Bull Nakano. So anyone who watched wrestling in the 90s, especially Japanese wrestling... And Bull Nakano, I think, wrestled in... WWF at one point and maybe even in WCW. I don't know, but was primarily a Japanese wrestler. So the metal fetishist kind of looks like bold Nakano mixed with like Gene Simmons from kiss. So that's our bad guy. <laughs> but now it's like, is he the bad guy? Because the fucking salary man this whole time we've, we've felt like all sympathetic towards, but then it's like, dude, you and your fucking bitch girlfriend, hit and run this fucking guy and then try to dispose of his body in the woods. And then right as you disposed of his fucking body, you didn't even bury it. You just like threw it in the woods and then you fucked up against a tree while he was in, you know, like his last dying breaths. It's like, that's not cool. You fucking psychos. <laughs> so, 
so yeah, so the metal fetishist, um, he like stop motion slides over to uh, Iron Man's apartment. It looks cool. There's a lot of stop motion shit like that where anytime anyone travels anywhere, any significant length of distance, you don't see them run or fly or anything. They're basically like standing still doing like a fucking like hero pose. <laughs> and, but they're sliding across the ground. So they're still moving, but they're not moving. It's weird. And it's, it's creepy, but it's, it's cool. So the metal fetishist fucking stop motion fucking slides over to the fucking, uh, Iron Man's apartment. And he doesn't actually go in. He like from the street, he's able to telepathically reanimate his dead girlfriend who, you know, the Iron Man ended up throwing in the fucking bathtub <laughs> and then sprinkling fucking flowers on her. It's very strange. But he basically brought her body back to life to attack uh, the Iron Man with a butcher knife again. And her, uh, at one point, her body kind of stop motion animate animation kind of grows this like gross, these like ground beef looking growths all over all over her body and it kind of forms around her like a, a cocoon, like completely covers her whole body. And then it fucking like peels apart like a banana. And then the metal fetishist like emerges from it, from the like cocoon. And, uh, it's super fucking cool. <laughs> and the metal fetishist, uh, you know, shows, the Iron Man, a vision of the new world, what the world is going to become. It's like, this is going to have like this whole thing of like, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to basically join forces with you, but you need to realize that we're turning. The world is going to turn into metal. Everything is going to turn into this like metallic metal world and he shows them a vision of this and and uh but they still got a fight so the fucking fight begins and the fight goes all the way across the city and while pursuing the iron man the fetishist gets painful visions when uh and 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 he it's basically he gets these visions from when he was a boy. So the metal fetishist was actually a boy at some point. And he's attacked and beaten by a homeless guy. I'm assuming he's homeless. You don't know if he's the kid's father or or just some random dude, but um he attacks the metal fetishist as a boy and it's from his perspective. It's from his POV. Uh he attacks him uh with a metal uh pipe basically it's basically the same metal it's a rod really it's like the same metal rod that he like jams into his leg vagina in the beginning of the movie so the metal fetishist has this sort of like this abusive moment from a child from when he was a child being beaten by a homeless guy with like a metal rod and i don't know how that makes him transcend human form to become a fucking a metal manipulating demon monster, but it does. So 
Also, the homeless guy was played by a guy named uh, uh, Renji Ishibashi. And that guy, and he's, like, young in this movie. He's got, like, a little fucking creeper fucking, like, Mike Patton mustache. and But he actually, um, he was, he played a Yakuza boss in the Takashi Miike film Gozu. I like that movie. The movie's fucking weird. But, yeah, I was like, hey. It's the fucking mob boss from fucking Gozu. Anyways, I thought that was cool. Also, uh, 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 Renji Ishibashi was also in um, Zadoichi at Large from 1972, one of the earlier Zadoichi films. I'm a big Zadoichi film. Uh, I'm really into those movies. So if you've never seen any of them, it's basically the story of a, a blind man who's like, the most badass fucking samurai ever. But he's also like a good guy. He goes into town and of course he meets the nicest people ever in town. And then the meanest people in town, like fuck with the nicest people. And then he's like, well, I like you nice people. So if anyone comes and fucks with you, I'm going to fucking kill him with my giant sword. And that's every Zatoichi movie. And I love it. I can't get enough of it, but yeah, that guy was in uh, Sadoichi at large. So, and uh, he he beats the metal fetishist with a metal rod as a child. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's uh, the Iron Man. So this this fight that they're engaging in is going all over fucking town. And uh, the Iron Man flees to this warehouse for the final fight, of course, because in the in the pantheon of great uh showdowns in warehouses um what what we got we got terminator 1 terminator 2 robocop cobra there's a f- the final fights in a warehouse in fucking cobra with the great brian thompson and uh what else cyborg <laughs> So of course the final showdowns in a warehouse, but the Iron Man is able to overpower the metal fetishist with his own telepathic control over metal. So uh, they're both like the both of them are like Magneto, except Japanese, and um, which is weird because the Japanese allied with the Nazis in World War II, and Magneto is Jewish. So, uh, that's weird. Anyways, the two of them, uh, he basically the two of them like slam into each other, and then they kind of get stuck, kind of like the 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 bad guy in Time Cop, how he runs into his his future self, and they're they're not allowed to touch each other because they can't occupy the same space, and then they end up just melding into one blob. That's basically what happens here. Like the two of them are fighting, and then they eventually fucking get stuck together and then the two of them meld together into one metal being an abomination a a they 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 turn into this a mo- mobile tank that is <laughs> that can psychically turn all of the world into rusted metal and end all living life So they, um, they're going to turn 
the world into a rusted metal graveyard, essentially. And, and they become this, like, they become this weird, goofy tank contraption. And uh, it, it reminds me of the uh, 1986 film uh, Eliminators. And it's about a man who becomes a tank. <laughs> but, if you, but if you mix that with the uh, Tetsuoshima character from Akira... So imagine the end of Akira where Tetsuo turns into a fucking uh, a veiny blob and uh, imagine that veiny blob also becoming a tank. So that's basically what happens to the metal fetishists and the salary man now transformed into the Iron Man. So um, so that that's that's basically um that's Tetsuo the Iron Man, and uh, I like it. I like it a lot. It's a it's a fun movie. It's weird, and um, for its time, it was incredibly unique. And I think it's unique now. It's a breath of fresh air. You know, you can only watch so many beautifully shot movies that have no story or content to them. And sometimes you want to watch something a little rough around the edges and outside the box. And it's a good way to kind of reset your brain. And uh, I recommend it very much. And it's one of those movies where the um, I found that ugh, when people started abbreviating like WTF, what the fuck? You know what? There was a time, the the what the fuck of my time when I was growing up. Uh, what the fuck was was like a call to action. It wasn't like, what the fuck is that? And then it wasn't a dismissive thing. It was like, what the fuck was almost, was like an actual question. And it if I had a follow-up question. The next question was like, how and why the fuck is that a fucking thing? And then you would just go down a wormhole and find out about that thing. And this movie is exactly an example, the perfect example of that. And, uh, no one wants that now. No one wants to be left shocked anymore. Everyone needs to know everything that's going on and feel like they have some sort of valid opinion on everything. And everyone wants everything to be transparent and it makes them feel safe. It makes them feel smart. And, you know, sometimes shit is weird. And it, you know, those things that are weird and it, it doesn't owe you a fucking answer to like, why, what is that? Why would anyone watch that? How about, why not? How that for, how about that for an answer? Sometimes shit is just weird and it just is what it is. And you have to just enjoy it for what it is. And Tetsuo the Iron Man is like that. And I'm going to be, uh, insanely pretentious right now and, and give you a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. And he said, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster for when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. So, with that being said, thank you very much for listening. 
This has been the Skeleton Factory podcast. Please keep uh, tabs with me. Ask me any questions. Send me recommendations for movies at uh, Instagram on at skeleton underscore factory. Once again, thank you very much for listening. I very much appreciate it. And I will catch you all on the next one. Bye-bye.